So today I'm joined on the show by Shannon Rogers, and we're going to be talking about a book that Shannon recommended, I think, to all of the hand-tooled students a while back as one of his favorite books. And it's really quite an incredible book. It's American Furniture of the 18th Century by Jeffrey Green. And I think it was really a unique book in terms of, I guess, the breadth and the scope that it's got inside of it. But before we get into the book, maybe Shannon, just to ask on your side, is there anything interesting going on in the shop and the bench? I've seen some snippets of you working on a a green woodworking semester that you know seems to be in the works for the end of the year. And I know Black Friday is kind of coming up and just wondered if there's anything happening there that you wanted to share with the listeners. Sure, sure. Well, um, again, thanks for having me back. It's always uh, fun to, to talk books. This is one of those do as I say, not as I do type <laughs> moments where I've got several things going on at the shop at the same time. And uh, I admit to sometimes coming into the shop and being a little confused. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to be working on today? I've even caught myself actually filming the wrong part of a project. <laughs> I was thinking about another project because right now I'm working on a series of lessons in the hand tool school. We put them all together and call them semesters. A semester on green woodworking. So, you know, from the, the basic elements of spoon carving all the way up to like post and rung chair construction, where you're starting from a log, arriving at your parts and working with you know, pure green materials. But that's a little bit difficult because the whole thing is, is of course, done outside. It's filmed outside. It's filmed in my backyard where I've got my logs and, you know, it, that's fantastic. But it also means that it's very weather dependent. So I get going on that. And then, you know, of course, it's, it's fall here. So it starts to rain. It's raining right now. It's absolutely horrible day for filming. Forget about the fact that it's cold and rainy. It's just terrible light. So I thought, all right, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start another project at the same time. So I've got another semester that is in the works that I don't have a snappy name for it yet, but I'm just kind of colloquially calling it your first project. And it's a direct play. A while ago, I did a, a semester that I'm calling orientation that was just really meant to be for someone that has zero experience in woodworking. And, you know, we build a workbench, we build a couple of, of appliances, we build the toolbox, and it kind of, it tees you up nicely to move on to your first project. So I'm working on this other semester that is three different projects that I had polled, actually, the, the hand tool school community a while ago about, you know, what were some of the first projects you built? Or more importantly, what were some of the first projects that the significant other asked for? Because let's face it, a lot of us get into woodworking and then you know, either there's a, there's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse that says, okay, great. Why don't you make me this? And I got a wide variety of, of answers, but a lot of them kind of fell into the same area. So I wanted to come up with three designs that using the tools that we used in orientation and using the skills that we learned in orientation could translate out of the shop. Because in orientation, we build shop stuff. We build a workbench, we build a marking gauge, you know, things that stay in the shop. I want to translate those skills across there into furniture that actually is going to leave the shop and is going to make a spouse very happy because it's something that they want you to build, you know? So um, that's been a lot of fun because I'm playing with the designs and, you know, I can't get too carried away because there are certain things, you know, you get real heavily into curves and things and you start getting into more of a specialized tool set. And I really want to keep the tooling very simple, very straightforward. but 
you know, with the idea that we're going to add like three tools throughout the semester because the orientation semester is a very, very bare bones tool set. And there's a lot you can do with it, but at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying a few extra tools, especially if you have a project that kind of, uh, demands something like that. So it's been a lot of fun to come up with spins on things like the typical bookcase or the typical bench or cabinet that don't just look like something right out of, you know, a catalog somewhere that have a little bit of a a personal feel to them, even a little bit of a more advanced technique look to it, but it's not at all. You know, we're, we're working with angles, we're working with mortise and tenons, and angled mortise and tenons, but the beauty of the hand tool approach is an angled mortise and tenon is exactly the same as a non-angled mortise and tenon. It's still the same series of cuts, just they're done at different angles. And like I always say, 90 degrees is an angle, so there's really no different there. So it's been a lot of fun, and I'm hoping to have the stars align and have at least one <laughs> of those semesters packaged and ready to go in time for the whole you know holiday rush. Uh, I always do a sale, Black Friday. Uh, it's the only sale I do all year, and I hope to have that uh, ready to go by then as well. So yeah, it's going to be a busy, busy month here, trying to juggle both of those semesters at the same time. Super. Thanks for the chin. And I mean, I guess, you know, certainly having those ready by the end of the year will be fantastic. But with the, the new sort of subscription, you know, all you can eat model, there's a lot of semester content there for anyone else who's thinking about joining uh, to keep them busy in the interim. There's uh, certainly no shortage of videos and techniques there. Yeah, I, I lost count. I now just say there are thousands of hours. <laughs> it's more than that now, but I'm not going to count it up anymore. Notwithstanding all of the content that's in there, I guess there's also all the user and community created content. And I speak for myself, but I think it's true of many of the other apprentices or members there. You also seem to hook up with some, you know, woodworking buddies. You know, I always joke to my wife that, you know, Brad's my best woodworking friend and he's a guy in America that I've I've never met. He's in Georgia. I'm in South Africa. And, you know, hardly a week goes by without me bouncing an idea of him and him bouncing an idea of us. And I know tonight you sort of spoke about some of the work that Thane was doing. And, you know, he sort of joined in on some conversations. So you, you find people that are at similar places to you and, you know, safe space to bounce the ideas around there. So there's, yeah, certainly I think there's no limit on uh, the content there at all. Yeah, I, I think that is interesting because it's certainly not a new idea. You know, a forum is as old as the internet. But I don't know, something magical happened with the Hand Tool School Forum. Certainly when you get people of kind of like interest, you're always going to find that, you know, it's it's civil. But there are some really ugly Hand Tool Forums out there. (laughs) There are some groups on Facebook that are Hand Tool dedicated only, and I wouldn't post there on a bet. And I just, I don't know what it was. Certainly, I mean, there is, there is an admission fee, not, you know, you do have to be a member of the Hand Tool School. Now you could have bought a $10 $10 lesson and you have, you have access to it. But I think that must change something. You know, the, the fact that there was a price for admission, I guess, has changed how serious people are or what. I don't know. There's just, there's a level of respect. And I will say that forum is, mm, the school itself is more than 10 years old, but the forum only came around maybe about five or six years ago. I have yet to moderate a single comment in six years. That's just shocking to me. It makes my job really easy, but yeah, it's a really, really great bunch of folks. And I mean, you can spend hours digging through there, getting useful information, helping people out, having people help you out. Yeah, I, I love that. I'd like to say it's one of my proudest accomplishments, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> it's just, it just kind of organically happened. So yeah, it's really, really cool. 
that's definitely a very serendipitous part of the whole experience. So a while back, there was a video of yours and, you know, I, I guess it's true of kind of all the woodworking rock stars, you know, uh, yourself and Rex and Paul and, you know, anyone who's, you know, got a following. I mean, I remember Bob Rosieski podcast as well, you know, people say, what are the good woodworking books that, you know, you would recommend? And for me, the one that was kind of front and center was uh, Jeffrey Green's book. And it was a book I hadn't heard about. Not a overly expensive book to acquire. Uh, I think my copy was somewhere between 20 and $30 on, on Amazon. And oh, good for you. I checked recently, Shannon, and you, know, you can still get them kind of in that range. You know, I think you, you are looking for them typically secondhand. It uh, certainly wasn't uh, handsaw essentials, which uh, you know, Chris's $150 masterpiece that I've got on my bookshelf that really broke the bank. So it wasn't an overly expensive book, and yet it just feels like there's everything in it. If we just start, there's obviously the history section and then there's the construction. But the first time I read it, you know, I went through it and I picked out the things that were of interest to me. And, you know, now rereading it probably about 15, 16 months after the first time I read it, I was hit on, I think, the 20th or 30th page with an example of how the round tenons were used in the William and Mary style. And I just realized I've got a small mini lathe. I could use exactly that kind of a technique to extend, you know, the reach of the lathe. And that I didn't pick up at all on the first reading. And I would suggest it's a kind of book that you can just keep going back to dependent mm -hmm. on your level and just find some new stuff in it every time. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely a reference manual to kind of keep close at hand. The difference is, see, and I, I found a point in my, for lack of a better term, woodworking career, where I stopped buying woodworking books and I started buying furniture books. You know, I started buying more of the museum books because it was less about how do I do that and more about kind of the inspiration and learning about the furniture styles and things like that. But this book, Jeff, well, first of all, Jeff is a furniture maker. And I think that's one of the reasons that makes this book so good. He is certainly a historian of his own right, but he's an, a historian because by necessity, because he does reproduction work, and he really has a specialization in Newport style, the, um, the Goddard and Townsend type masterpiece works that came out of Newport in the 18th century. That is the type of work that he is asked to build. It's the type of work that he's asked to restore, and in some instances, to exactly imitate. So he had to become a researcher in order to figure out the little details. How did Townsend make the sweeping curve on the back of a cabriole leg as compared to Goddard. You know, was there a difference? They were working for a while out of the same shop, but then there was a point where they were out of different shops and did things change? So if I'm emulating or trying to reproduce a piece that was from 1868 as compared to 1877, I'm going to find a difference in the sweep of that cabriole leg or the piercing in the ball and claw foot behind the talon is slightly different. Or this piece looks completely different here. Well, that's because it was made by Ella Chapin, you know, and not these other two guys. So he had to really put on his historian hat. And then he put out this book. And, and if I remember right, it's early or late 90s. Actually, I've got the book in front of me. It's uh, 96 is the first printing on this book, which interestingly enough, um, it was about $75 back then. <laughs> When I got my copy uh, 11, 12 years ago, I got a deal on it at $60. So 
which is interesting because as you say, the Handsaw Essentials book by Christopher Schwartz, I picked that up on its first release at Woodworking in America, I think for $25. <laughs> but now it's out of print and now it's, you know, this this massively expensive thing. And then likewise, we're able to find, you know, Jeffrey Green's book for $20, $30. Used to be you couldn't find it for less than 70. So it's funny how that happens. But what I found most exciting 11 or 12 years ago, I was introduced to this book by the author, by Jeffrey Green in 2009 at the Woodworking in America Design Conference. It's the only time they ever did this. And it's the saddest thing that it just, it didn't hit. Like it had really low attendance and they just decided not to do it again. And it was such a shame because it was entirely focused on the design of various pieces. You know, there was, a, there was, any, there was a, um, an arts and crafts seminar. There was a green and green seminar because that was really, really popular, still is popular today. And then Jeffrey Green did a seminar on furniture of the golden era, the 18th century, really covering the Jacobean style up through the federal period. Well, not so much federal. He just touches briefly on federal, but it's mostly really, really early, early stuff. Because for the most part, we're talking William and Mary, Queen Anne, and Chippendale, period. He does touch on kind of the Jacobean, what some people, Follinsby, Peter Follinsby furniture. Pilgrim furniture. He touches on that kind of as a way to show how we got to William and Mary and how we got to Queen Anne. But he also writes this book from the perspective of a guy who has actually shaped the curve on that cabrio leg, who has actually cut the dovetails to put together the case that sits on that low boy. And it was the first time that I found a book that actually showed you the guts of the furniture. You know, you can go through museum book after museum book and there's glamour shots and there's usually outer dimensions. You know, here's the table and it's this high by this deep by this wide. And, and occasionally you might get a shot like of the underside because there was a particularly cool maker's mark or something like that, you know, or sometimes uh, a maker's mark inside the drawer. So maybe in the museum book, there was a picture kind of taken inside the drawer, but you never really get to see the interior of these pieces. Moreover, if you go to a museum and start opening drawers, you will be shown the door. <laughs> you will be asked to leave very politely and then not so politely if you do it a second time. So we never really get to see this stuff. So there's always a little bit of a, well, how do they do that? How is that chest of drawers constructed? Like I'm looking at the outside and I'm seeing a dovetail on that drawer blade, but is that a through dovetail? Is that a sliding dovetail all the way through or does it just go in like an inch? And how, what's going on behind there? Are there dust shelves? Are there just runners? And Jeffrey actually does that. He shows, he's got great diagrams and drawings, and he shows in these different styles, here is generally what they did. More importantly, here's what this maker did and this maker did, and he draws it for you. So as a woodworker who wants to build some of this furniture, it's not a book of plans. You know, there are no measured drawings in here, but there's lots of schematic drawings and there's lots of here's how it was done. I still am hesitant to call this a how-to book. You know, he's got a section in there on ways to make types of banding, you know, and, and a way that a tenon could be cut here and there. But there really isn't a lot of actual woodworking technique in the book. It's really, really specific to our particular design feature. That was, I think, still totally different. I really don't think anybody has touched on that because all of the books you see now are pretty much a measured drawing. And, you know, there's that opening chapter on here are the various tools you're going to need. And then there's a chapter on sharpening. 
And then there's the chapter on how to cut various types of joinery. And then it just goes into a picture of a piece of furniture, turn the page, there's a measured drawing, and then maybe there's a few notes on the construction. And that's it. You know, This is a coffee table book, really, in its purest form. But it's written by a woodworker who is very much one of the preeminent historians on 18th century furniture. It's unique in that respect, which is why it is still my number one pick. Anytime somebody says, what's your favorite woodworking book? I always pull this one out because just no one can touch it. And as I continue to run on here, I was very fortunate to actually have lunch with Jeffrey Green. That makes it sound more intimate than it was. I was at a table <laughs> with Jeffrey Green and a bunch of other woodworkers eating lunch after his seminar. And it was outside Chicago in 2009 and really just got to kind of pick his brain on how the book came to light, um, what his work was like. His shop is called Ball and Claw, which I find is a very cool name for a shop. Just an amazing man with an encyclopedic knowledge of 18th century furniture, but specifically Newport style 18th century furniture, which is a lot of people would say is really like the creme de la creme of 18th century American furniture. That was a mouthful. <laughs> you know, when you talk about Newport style, and I, and I guess I've probably got a slightly different perspective because I come as a non-American, you know, to the to the book. But I found it really fascinating because I guess in a way there's, you know, it's probably true of most of us, I guess, in the 21st century is, is we tend to stereotype and group and categorize things together based on our understanding of today. So, you know, mm -hmm. two examples that jumped out for me is that I wouldn't have thought of, you know, Philadelphia and Boston having competing styles. You know, to me, those are American cities. And, you know, as a result, there'd be a lot of commonality. And I mean, it's quite clear from the book that Newport, Philadelphia, Boston, you know, you, you name it, they really had quite distinct regional differences, at least at the pre-Chippendale directory type publications. Before that, those regional styles were really distinct and, and really unique. And if you know what you're looking for, it becomes quite easy to identify those characteristics. And I, f I found that fascinating because, yeah. you know, as a, as a modern person, I think of America as a country. You, you don't think of it as these distinctly different places. Right. No, but it was, it was absolutely true. And that kind of opened my eyes. And I was, I was very fortunate shortly after learning of this book and buying this book that I went to the Wintager Museum in Delaware with Chuck Bender, who to me is the encyclopedia of 18th century furniture, and got a chance to just kind of walk through the museum. And of course, Chuck constantly restoring furniture. So he has kind of a, a little bit more license, if you will, in Wintager. They know him, they know what he does. Um, they know that he respects the furniture. So he kind of gets a little bit more behind the scenes look at some of this stuff. But it was there that I, I started to realize those regional differences were driven by a lot of factors. Some of it was, you know, lack of mobility in the 18th century, which I, I do think is often overstated. You know, I mean, just look at uh, the American founding fathers. I mean, they traveled back and forth from New York City because the New York City was the capital for a while. Thomas Jefferson went back and forth from the Richmond or Charlottesville area all the way up to New York City quite often. So it wasn't like they were completely immobile, but for the most people, for the working class, even though such a thing didn't really exist in the 18th century, they were in a very small area. So we had the apprentice system that was going on. So a master taught the apprentice how furniture was made. 
And that master was taught by another master before him. And they were all kind of in the same area. So all of those masters in Philadelphia were teaching their apprentices to make a side chair with a through tenant into the back leg. And every single one was made with a through tenant. And if you want to look at a Queen Anne side chair and figure out where it's from, look on the back side. If the tenant goes all the way through, it was made in Philadelphia. If it doesn't, it was made somewhere else, generally made in Boston. But there are there are little things that will highlight the Bostonian furniture as well. There's even things that will highlight, um, like I said, Newport furniture from Boston furniture from even Maine. You're going to find differences. Look at the works today of Joshua Klein. You know, the work of Jonathan Fisher had a very distinct style to it. But that brings up a whole other aspect of you have Philadelphia furniture, but then you have Harrisburg furniture, which at the time was out in the sticks, you know, the boonies, the country furniture, the the low men's furniture, totally different style drawn from the cosmopolitan region of of Richmond or Philadelphia or Boston, but kind of, I don't want to say debased because that is a negative term, but kind of almost dumbed down to be more of of a provincial feel to it. All of that greatly influenced how the furniture came out. And a lot of it was socioeconomic. Some of it was, again, that apprentice system driving, this is how you do it. I mean, you see that today. If you've taken a class on cutting dovetails, you probably cut dovetails the way that teacher told you to cut dovetails. And that's kind of the way you're going to do it. And you don't try another way, maybe because you're afraid you'll screw it up or because this is the way that it works for this guy, you know. I've seen Frank Klaus cut dovetails and Rob Cosman cut dovetails and Chuck Bender cut dovetails, and they all do it slightly differently. You know, we have this benefit of the internet where we can get all these different tastes of different styles of cutting the same joint, but 10, well, more than 10 years ago, but 20 years ago, it was whatever that teacher taught you up to 300 years ago, and it was done that way. So you really do see very, very distinct regional changes. And Green is very good at kind of tapping into that. At the beginning of each period chapter, he's got chapters in the book, you know, for Queen Anne, he's got one for Chippendale, and he really talks about what was going on at the time. More importantly, what was going on at the time in America? Because this furniture, Queen Anne furniture, American Queen Anne furniture was very different from the Queen Anne furniture we saw in Britain. First of all, the Queen Anne period had been in vogue and was on its way out by the time it made it across the ocean to the colonies. So there was that difference as well. And, you know, he's really, really good at laying out what was happening in the world and why or how rather that transferred into the furniture and the look and the feel of the furniture. That to me was, that was a watershed moment when I started to realize that furniture was more than just you know, a a tenon and a mortise and a curve here and a curve there, it was dictated by so many other things in life. And you can relate to that today by, you know, you want to build, um, well, good example. You just built a cupboard, right? For your daughter. Yep. She kind of dictated what it looked like, didn't she? And there were some design changes that happened, even all the way down to the paint scheme that was used was determined by the customer. Well, where did that customer get her ideas? You know, and that shapes everything. And some of it is the old keeping up with the Joneses idea of, you know, maybe she has a friend that has a cupboard and it looked like this, or she saw somebody on Instagram that had a cupboard or looked like that or, or, or whatever. That still happens today. And we were kind of foolish to think that that's not how furniture was shaped 300 years ago. It's very, very cool to find that common ground and realize that not much has changed in in, in design. 
I think that's bang on, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm building a desk for my daughter now as, as a sort of follow-up project. And that was literally, we were sitting down in a burger joint. We were having burgers. Uh, she's been a vegetarian for the last couple of years. So she's having a vegetarian burger and I've got something that's got bacon and cheese and maple syrup and everything I could think of on top of it. And she flipped through a, a newspaper that had a office furniture catalog in it. And she said, dad, I want that desk. And I looked at it and I you know when a little bit of you dies inside, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I said, Gabby, you know, really, I can show you. She's no, no, dad, I want that desk. And so I ended up putting together a, a variant of it. I mean, it's, I would suggest 90% accurate to the original picture. And when my wife saw it, she went, oh, that's fantastic. That's that Scandinavian stuff. I think she means Danish modern or IKEA or something like that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to carry that conversation any further. But the point is, is they're influenced by what they see and what they like, and I could take that and translate it. I think I've kept the basic uh, lines and shape of that, and I and I think I've put together something that's a lot more elegant, and I'm happier with it as a piece of furniture. But her her thoughts and her direction and what she gave to me as an instruction is dictated by what's around her and you know so I think it's very understandable about someone you know maybe having 200 300 examples in Chippendale's book and showing them to people in the area but regardless of the fact that that could be shown to any area those people in the area had an idea about what style meant it was because Mr. Jones who was well respected in the in the town had a certain type of furniture and they wanted to imitate him or you know, someone had gone and bought an expensive piece on a long haul trip and they brought it back and that wanted to be imitated. So I think there's definitely that kind of that cocoon of where you grow up and what is expected in your area. And it would have been, I imagine, difficult to break out from there. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, one of the beautiful sort of historical stories that I guess I would, I'd love to know the true story behind was about this porter chair, you know, that sort of pitches up and it's clear that there's a traveling influence because it's, outside of the area where that style was done and yet we start seeing a specific type of chair you know pitching in a specific area and I, and I guess that would have been an incredible journeyman you know who was probably really charismatic and you know did an exceptional quality of work that he could influence the area because you know back to your point about how much traveling there was one of the worst historical books I've read is uh, memoirs of a Victorian cabinet maker. And there's really not very much in that book at all that I would recommend to to listeners of the show or, you know, fans of furniture. But he talks about his walking trips around Europe, uh, sorry, around England at one point. And I mean, the distances that they covered are, are insane. You know, if you said to someone today, listen, you're going to walk from London to Manchester, to Liverpool, to back here, to, you know, to up there in, in England, people would look at you like you were crazy. And yet at that time, you know, you would set out for a, you know, a one month or a two month trip and you'd go and walk a, you know, a goodly number of miles every day and you could cover an incredible amount of uh, distance that way. Yeah. There's a, a diagram in Green's book about the ball and claw foot and the variations you might find with that based upon where it was made. You know, he shows a, a distinct Massachusetts foot, a distinct Newport, Rhode Island foot, a Philadelphia foot and a New York foot. and I can remember having this conversation and actually looking at furniture in the Winterger Museum and very clearly seeing that. And then we saw another piece of furniture that I immediately said, oh, okay, well, this must be a Massachusetts piece of furniture. And I was actually, again, with Chuck Bender at the time. And he said, actually, no, that's not a Massachusetts foot. That was actually made in Connecticut. 
And it's like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's next to Massachusetts. But when you look at other Connecticut pieces, they don't look like that. And it turned out it was a piece of furniture that was made by Elephant Chapin. And I said, well, well, well how, how is that? Well, it turns out Chapin was schooled in, in a Massachusetts uh, cabinet shop. So he learned from a Massachusetts master and he learned to make Massachusetts or Bostonian style ball and claw feet. But he had a bit of a run-in with the preacher's daughter and was essentially run out of town and had to open his own shop, well, in 18th century terms, far away in Connecticut. And he was immediately dropped into other cabinet makers who were making a distinct style of foot. And interestingly enough, he got a lot of business because he had this very different style to the ball and claw he was making. And it was much more cosmopolitan because it was Bostonian. And ooh, look at this. It's a fancy Boston cabinet maker here in Connecticut. And he got a lot of business because he was new and different. And suddenly everybody wanted to keep up with, with that particular style. But the funny thing, the dirt behind that is the only reason of that is because he got in trouble <laughs> for messing around with a preacher's daughter and was run out of town. So, you know, there's a little bit of a, a dark past there that brought this about. But even today, you know, you can make that mistake and think, oh, this was made somewhere, you know, because of how it looks. And it turns out it actually wasn't that way because you get these little outliers that kind of throw a monkey wrench into things, which I kind of like. I, you know, it's, it's that whole idea that, yes, this is the style in Philadelphia. This is the style in Boston. But you know, we happen to know that they look different in New York than they do in Virginia. So let's embrace several of different styles. And today, when we build a, a piece of furniture, we can draw on a lot of things. You know, I mean, I can't tell you the, the number of green and green arts and crafts style pieces that I've seen that have elements from like eight different green houses, you know, that this never existed in the green and green catalog. Or moreover, look at Chippendale, Thomas Chippendale's director. Look at that. You will not see a ball and claw foot in there. But when we think, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, ball and claw, that's Chippendale. And a lot of times the ball and claw is defined as a key element in the Chippendale style. But Thomas Chippendale didn't use the ball and claw very much, if at all. Most of his furniture has a square foot on, on there. But, you know, somebody somewhere said, okay, well, the Brits are using it, so let's try it here. And it became really, really popular. And now it's actually defined as a key element in the Chippendale style, or what might more appropriately call kind of a more Baroque style. Baroque, Rococo. What I think is fascinating about the ball and clawfoot, I wasn't aware of the origins of that, you know, before I'd read the book. And, you know, talking again to sort of modern stereotypes, you know, you, you only have to listen to one episode of the lumber industry update and talk about, you know, Chinese plywood, you know, to have a distinct impression of uh, that part of the world. And yet, at this point in history, the Oriental influence was considered to be something really new and really exciting. And, you know, I, I wasn't aware that these ball and claw flutes had originated in China. Dragon claw grasping a pearl. And that at the time, England had such a huge fascination with with uh, um, Oriental pieces of furniture, you know, and you, mm -hmm. you know, in Chippendale's director, I mean, there's obviously some, you know, some really, I don't know, I don't want to call them mangled, but they're definitely not Chinese furniture. If I open Gustav Ecker's book and I open Chippendale's book and we look at, uh, you know, the Chinese designs, they, they really, they bear no resemblance to each other. And yet at that point in history, something from China was seen as as wonderful and exotic. And, you know, there's even that sort of short fad of 
japanning being something that was really fashionable you know and and yet today I couldn't imagine that that you know that could have happened in a in a period of history so I love the elements in the book where it's almost like this historical I don't know m- murder mystery you know where you you read about what was happening in one place and then what was going on and then and how that translated and the periods covered are incredible because let's call it you know four styles five styles if we include jacobean but the range in that time is is unbelievable from jacobean furniture to chippendale and federal furniture and you know along the way we we certainly had stuff like queen anne which for me you know really feels like a a kind of timeless blend uh, you know an incredible style but what happened in those hundred years is just mind-blowing yeah and the same thing kind of continues to repeat there's some like moment that drives some interest. You know, we we talk about just the opening up of the Far East and it brought these designs that were just completely revered by Western Europe. But fast forward a hundred years to the advent of the federal period, which was really neoclassical design. Well, Pompeii had just been unearthed. You know, Vesuvius erupted and and essentially entombed Pompeii so that you have this like freeze-dried, perfect representation of a Roman town. And as they began to to dig and uncover things, they were uncovering architecture and uncovering silver type stuff, tea settings and, and cups and things like that. And really, this was a completely preserved Roman town. And all of that classical architecture from ancient Rome and ancient Greece suddenly became the thing. It was the fad. And if you look at federal, it's like go go from Chippendale to Sheraton or Heppelwhite. On the timeline, those are next to one another. You know, there's Queen Anne, and then we then we evolved into Chippendale, and then we evolved into Federal, and it's like, whoa, what right turn was made there? We go from heavily carved, sweeping curves, very massive kind of dominating presence with all of this opulent carved surfaces and things like that, to suddenly very delicate, kind of almost boxy, totally rectilinear. And if curves are used, they're kind of very very gentle, but they're only used kind of in the plan. You don't see it from an elevation perspective. It's all classical geometric elements. And the ornamentation is not carved, but it's inlaid. It's flat. It's two-dimensional. And it's like, what the hell? (laughs) How, How did we go there so quickly? You would think there would be a period in between. And it was literally because an archaeologist dug up a Roman city that had been covered in volcanic ash and the world was captivated. And that was it. Now, it also so happens there was this birth of a new country called America. There's minor war that went on, yep. Yeah, you know, really big on democracy and really big on ancient Greek ideals of democracy and how to run a government. And of course, you know, the the excavation of Pompeii immediately spoke to the American forefathers and boom, you know, that was all you saw. At that point in the early United States, it was nothing but federal furniture with the inlays going from Pateré to an eagle. You know, that was the thing, you know, and that, of course, became the, the symbol of the, the United States. And then, of course, we moved on to empire furniture and people made bad decisions from there. And it was not a good idea. We should have just skipped the empire period and stuck with federal. But that's my opinion. But yeah, I think it's cool that you can see that one element that does that. You can even say the same thing from Jacobean to William and Mary. You know, the restoration after the whole Oliver Cromwell fiasco and shutting off the British Isles from any influence of France and the continent, just completely shut it down. So the the British people were living with 
frame and panel chests on dirt floors, you know, and, and, and why did we use a frame and panel chest? Because we needed to keep the chest up off the dirt floor or it would rot. So suddenly, you know, we're opened with the restoration of the throne to these ideas coming in from France and boom, we go to delicate turned legs with dovetailed boxes sitting on top of those delicate turn legs. Totally different style from the frame and panel chest of the Jacobean style. And it was because of that one thing, the restoration of the crown that allowed for that to happen. It's really cool to see how that political thing totally changed the style of, of furniture. I think it's something that the book does really well is that it just reinforces that you can't examine the furniture outside of the context of the time you know and I, I think one of the examples that you know always resonates with me is sort of the arts and crafts movement and Ruskin and Morris and you always talk about the intent that they had as well as the furniture but in each one of these styles there's a political or an ideological framework you know whether it's mm-hmm. let's say say William and Mary you know where, where there's certainly um, geometric consistency in there but it looks completely different from a Jacobean style. And you can understand that that was influenced by the affluent people in society, the, the nobility, you know, trying to portray a certain, let's call it, I don't want to say ostentation, but there were some opulent elements in that. And then you have Puritans in, in England where that's not necessarily seen in quite the same light. It's impossible for me to imagine that Chippendale furniture could have existed um, under Oliver Cromwell in England, you know, it, it just it, you you just you just cannot imagine that happening. And I think you know you, you mentioned federal period. You know, um, you wonder about whether those classical influences would have been able to happen if the Pompeii excavation had happened fifty years earlier, or sixty years earlier, or a hundred right. years later. I think that you see that happening, and yet it seems like that perfect storm to come together to create that. And I know that all those people at Pompeii, they were really, all they were trying to find was that fresco of the earliest workbench for Chris Schwartz. You know, I know that was the main thing that they were digging for there, but uh, all, all of those artifacts coming out, you can understand how that would capture the popular imagination at the time. Yeah, agreed. But you're spot on without some sort of external stimulus, you know, the birth of a new nation built around democracy, would that have been would that have been fanned to life like it was? Because when you look at European federal, it's a totally different and very short-lived period that quickly moved on to much more opulent designs. You know, and the whole chinoiserie thing really went, kind of got out of hand. And, you know, we started to see crazy levels of marquetry in France coming out and it just kind of skipped over, plowed ahead. And in the United States, politically, it fit the ideals of the founding fathers. So it was the, you know, flame was fanned to life and it became a much, much bigger movement in North America than it ever was on the continent. You know, Shannon, one of the things that also jumped out at me in the book is the influence that sort of architectural elements had, you know, played on some of these designs. And I know that you've also, re- another book you've recommended is Elements of Style, you know, really just looking at that. But I, I think that also came across in the, the book quite clearly as a sort of interplay between what was going on with building construction at the time and how those elements also then translated into the furniture. And I, you know, talking of, you know, these big events, you, it's hard to imagine some of this having happened without the great fire in London and then things being rebuilt and the architectural Mm -hmm. styles, things were rebuilt in, influencing the furniture again. Agreed. As a furniture maker, just, you know, a woodworker liking to build furniture, we have to remember that furniture 
was kind of the late comer to the party in all of this, you know? So stylistically speaking, you know, let's just pick one Chippendale. Well, that was really late to the party. It was the more expensive stuff that got things first, you know, the, the China and the silver work and all of that really were the trendsetters. And architecture was leading the way in that as well. And you want to really talk about the power behind that, it was the Catholic Church or, you know, the Anglican Church, depending on where you were, that was driving these, these huge opulent cathedrals that were being built and the decorations and the uh, precious metal work that was being done inside the artwork and um, even going back further to things like tapestries, that was the pioneer. That was the in vogue thing, if you will, the a la mode Let's keep with the French idea here. And the furniture makers were kind of picking up the dregs, you know, as the as the money traveled downhill, if you will, because they're expensive stuff, you know, to commission a cathedral. Well, that takes a fair amount of money to buy, you know, a silver tea set. That's also a very, very expensive item. Furniture was a lot less expensive. In fact, what made furniture expensive was the textile. You know, the seat cushion on that Chippendale chair was worth way more than the wood and the craftsmanship of the chair itself, because that seat cushion was made out of silk or something that came from the Far East. And it was woven and, you know, carried on the back of a donkey all the way across Europe (laughs) to get there. It was worth a heck of a lot more. So we look at these furniture styles and think, oh, it was interesting how this style morphed into that style, when actually... They were just copying stuff that had been done for 50 years in other forms, like architecture. That was really in the driver's seat. Tea settings, I think, really were probably the pioneer of everything. They Because certainly it's a lot easier to come up with a new style in a tea setting than it is at a cathedral. <laughs> it's a little, little, bit, little bit smaller scale to work with there. But, you know, there's so many outside influences that drove the furniture style. And I don't think there is a furniture style that exists without that style being embodied in another form like architecture or precious metal work or something like that before. Maybe there is, I don't know. Maybe when you get into the the Danish stuff, the Scandinavian design, but even then one could say that that's borrowing from a Japanese minimalism. There's an argument to have be had there. You know, I guess I look at furniture today and you see this beautiful carved mahogany chest of drawers or, or high boy or something like that. And you, you look at that and you you imagine what that would cost today to buy and you immediately discount the cost of the linen and the clothes or whatever that you'd put inside of it because today you know the textiles are they're really really cheap compared to the furniture and yet yeah. you know when you read the book and you realize that these pieces of furniture were allowed to be that expensive because of how expensive the linen was that they were storing and that that was the purpose of them it's you know it's a very a very different world even just on the wood choices i i found it very interesting in the book that the mahogany import duties were you know so high into england and that was done for protectionist reasons and whatever but certainly what sort of allowed the william and mary and the queen anne to progress from a, a wood point of view was a political event in france around you know shortage of mahogany and a customs war and a trade war and then dropping the import duties from the colonies and then suddenly mahogany burst onto the scene and it was affordable and yet when I look at mahogany I obviously look at mahogany in today's context and think about today's pricing and you know that puts a completely different value on the wood to I guess in the period in the time. Yeah that's the funny thing too is um mahogany you know we think of of so much of this Queen Anne stuff as being mahogany furniture well that was easy to get 
And in fact, there is a lot of argument that says so much of the mahogany furniture, and I'm putting air quotes around mahogany, the mahogany furniture made on the continent was actually African Sapelia or more likely African Utili because the Dutch East India Company, the Italians, the Portuguese, the French were already in Africa and were already, you know, colonizing, pulling products out of the dark continent that it was really easy to get. The South American mahogany had also, that trade had also been well established. When you think about, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, you know, we've been pulling stuff out of Central America and the Caribbean since the 1500s, earlier than that. But it wasn't until the 1700s that walnut came onto the scene. And that doesn't exist over in, well, there's some, there is some English walnut, but very, very rare. Walnut was the wood of choice. And so much furniture was made in mahogany because it was relatively easy to get. But the really prized furniture made in England and in, in Europe at the time was made with American walnut because it didn't exist anywhere. And it was a lot harder to get because, of course, there was this war going on. And you know, even before the Revolutionary War, there was the French were fighting the Portuguese were fighting the British, who, you know, and and of course the Native Americans had a little bit to say on there as well. So it became that was the wood of choice. And mahogany, although we view it as a really prized species now, really wasn't that big of a deal back then. Everybody wanted walnut, which is interesting when you look at the price of walnut today as compared to mahogany. They're actually pretty similar. It's interesting that you talk about African mahogany because I was in the Cape Town Botanical Gardens probably about nine or ten months ago and I took a photo of a tree then. I can't remember if it was if it was Kai or Sapili, but it but it was planted there in the Cape Town Botanical Gardens. And that's, you know, right where the first colonies in, in Cape Town started in the sort of sixteen fifties, etc. So, you know, when you talk about the Dutch East India Company, that was their trading outpost down at the foot of Africa. And you have to imagine that that tree that was planted in the botanical gardens there, you know, would have come Via that route, I must actually dig up that picture because that's it's quite an interesting point that you raise there with a little bit of a local sort of influence for me. But talking of late to the party, I mean, you know, the other thing that you know I realized from reading the book that we sitting in 1754 and we have the gentleman and cabinet makers director getting published, and this is really the first known dedicated furniture design book, and not, mm-hmm. I guess, an original work so much in terms of. It seems very much like Chippendale was bringing together some original designs, but obviously also a lot of what was just established at the time and putting that into a book. It was the first catalog, really. It was the first, you know, Sears Roebuck catalog. Here's what you can what you can get if you shop with Thomas Chippendale cabinet makers. Yeah, he was the first one to do it. And I mean, certainly before that, there's a lot of published work on architectural designs that seem to, you know, have, have been around there. And like you say, kind of late to the party, this comes onto the scene. And then we obviously uh, have Heppelwhite and, you know, Sheraton, et cetera, also, you know, then kind of expanding on that. But in a very short period of time, we go from, I guess, a regional learned way of making furniture to something where there are these catalogs that you can have a look at and you can go and select a style from that. And that starts to then bring in the sort of globalizing element, I guess, in a way. But I was certainly struck in the book that there's certainly a very distinct American interpretation of these styles. You know, when you hear about a, what was going on in the continent and what was acceptable, something like you know, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Fifteenth, whatever the you know Versailles furniture and that level of ostentation, and that not really being acceptable, you know, across the right. pond where those influences were recognised, but 
maybe just didn't take hold of the imagination in, in the same way? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's like, were they were they just kind of mellowed down or diluted? And one could actually say that <laughs> that's kind of a, a symbol of the American people. You know, as the melting pot of all these different cultures, you kind of end up diluting the strong defining characteristics. I personally am of German and English descent. And it's like, well, what does that actually mean? It's all blended together and, and it dilutes out the strong things that say, oh, that person's German or that person's British. And I think that's the same thing. If you look at a good example, the Windsor chair. You know, let's look at a, at, a, at a lower style, a little bit more approachable piece. The American Windsor chair is a stark contrast to the British Windsor chair, where the British Windsor chair, first of all, it's a lot clunkier. It's a lot heavier, both in appearance, but also in, in just physical weight. The British Windsor chair often has like a solid, heavy kind of back splat that usually has lots of pierced carving on it, whereas the American Windsor is light, delicate staves. Is that the word I'm looking for? What's the word? Spindles. Spindles. Good Lord. I'm getting old. <laughs> I can't remember stuff. Really delicate spindles. Totally different feel, but it's kind of a dilute version, a more laid back version. I mean, heck, the American accent, or as I would say, lack of accent is dilute, dumbed down version of a British accent. But then you also look at the other factors that come into play. You know, like I said, walnut was really, really a big deal because we had a lot of it in North America and there wasn't a lot in the continent. Another thing that we had a lot of over here was hickory and poplar. You know, poplar, the, the mountains run, uh, what is it? Uh, Roy Underhill used to say, the, they don't have poplar in Great Britain because the mountains run the wrong way. <laughs> the mountains in North America run north-south and the mountains are running the other way over in Great Britain. So poplars tend to grow very well on a, I'm trying to remember, leeward side of a mountain range and just the way the mountains run in North America and the way, you know, weather systems move, poplar grows very, very well in North America. And it really, you don't find it very much. You find variants of poplar over it in Europe, but not the same American poplar. Well, a lot of Windsor seats are carved out of poplar and hickory and oak is used in all those spindles because it was really easy to arrive. It allowed you to make very, very delicate yet super strong spindles and chairs. Oh, and you could also bend it. You look at a lot of the, um, the British Windsor's forms and there's less bent wood in there and more shaped wood where you've got a, a curve sack back arm rail, I guess you would call it, that is cut out of a solid board or is often laminated and glued together into like a, a demi-loon shape because they didn't have the same material not only the same material wealth because there's just nothing but forests over here, but we had these woods that could be steam bent, that just weren't available elsewhere. They say, uh, actually, Roy Underhill did a woodwright shop called The Wood That Built America, and it was all about hickory because hickory is the perfect axe handle material. And you know, all the trees that were felled to build America all had hickory axe handles. And he makes a strong case that if it wasn't for hickory, America might not exist. Maybe that's a bit of a reach, but it's, be, it's an interesting kind of thought experiment to think about without all the axe handles would progress have happened in North America like it did? Or depending on your view on deforestation, whether or not that's progress or not. But those things, that distinct American style is brought about by that dilution of the various cultures, but also just by either the glut of resources, just lots of trees, or the different types of trees that brought it about. And I think you will find the Queen Anne style in America to be more delicate 
to have a thinner ankle on the cabriole leg because of the, the materials that we were able to use and the abundance of the materials we were able to use. Moreover, if you look at Philadelphia Queen Anne and look at Virginian, what they call neat and plain, like you go down to Williamsburg, it's all very neat and plain. That's what they call that Southern Queen Anne style. Very different look. You know, Philadelphia still was a, a cosmopolitan port, had a lot of influence of Great Britain coming in and out. And down there in the boonies in, in Williamsburg, there wasn't any of that. So you really were allowed to foster this unique American style that utilized unique American resources. So it's not an easy answer, right? You know, it's a lot of different things all coming together at once. Add to the fact that some people just didn't want anything to do with Great Britain at that point or wanted anything to do with Europe because we were rebelling and we were going to start this new grand American experiment. And uh, let's not make British styles. Let's make American styles. So, yeah, to this day, you still find that American arrogance. <laughs> Here we are in election season. Maybe that American arrogance is viewed slightly differently than it was back then. Let's put the American election season aside. <laughs> it's not the, not, the, not the right podcast for that one. But I think it's easy to forget that at this point in history, I mean, you know, Britain had basically, you know, really destroyed their old growth forests in terms of making all the ships, you know, to go and start exploring the world and creating the empire and doing all the rest of that. And then you you hit America, which is really an absolutely untapped resource at the time. And I think, you know, when you read some of those early pilgrim books, and I'm reading a book actually about the settling of Ohio as well at the moment. And, you know, it just comes across clearly in all those writings that this wealth of the timber was something that was well understood and was, you know, really just an absolute revelation, you know, mm -hmm. versus a continent that had really, I guess, stripped and abused those resources for quite a long time. I mean, there's a reason they're doing coppicing in England, and it wasn't because there were just hundreds of acres of uh, old growth forest to be tapping into. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's what, what book are you reading about Ohio? It's about the settling of, uh, of Ohio, yeah. Is it by David McCullough? Yeah. McCullough also wrote a book on the Johnstown Flood that um, okay. up, in, up in Pennsylvania, and I, I believe the book is called The Johnstown Flood. But there's a really interesting segment in there just about the American steel industry, because of course, Johnstown is a coal town, and um, the lumber use and all of the glut of trees and forests that we had is what actually created industry. That's what allowed for the growth of the steel industry and the coal mining industry, because all of the, you think about if, when you, when you dig a mine, you need timber post to shore up the mine shaft. You know, the factories themselves were built using wood. The uh, rollers that the steel was rolled out as we perfected the Bessemer process was maple. And actually my company sold truckloads and truckloads of maple to the Bethlehem Steel Company up until the day it closed outside of Baltimore because maple was the best species of wood to allow the rollers to roll out the steel. Now it destroyed the maple eventually. So it was a great business for us because we shipped a new truckload or a new um, rail car just about every month to replace all the maple. But it's interesting, all of that industry, all of that growth that happened was because of those forests. And go back a couple hundred years, a lot of the industry that exists in Northern England was done the same way. It's just unfortunate. England's a tiny little island and they just ran out. Go back, um, when was the London Olympics? The opening ceremony, they did a whole thing about like industrialization in the opening ceremony that talked about that growth of, of, of industry. And it's the same thing that allows for English saws to have that big wide steel plate, whereas the German cabinet makers over on the continent were using frame saws because they didn't have all that steel. They didn't have all those natural resources. They didn't have that industry to just be able to, to roll out a, a spring steel plate like that. They used a skinny little blade put into a shop made wooden frame. 
And England, not only they had the natural resources, the coal and the iron and things like that, but they had the timber to jumpstart that industry. They just ran out <laughs> really fast. So, so Shannon, very good call there. David McCulloch, the pioneers, the heroic yeah, okay. story of the settlers who brought the American ideal west. So that was the book. He's one of my favorite authors. He's got a book coming out, uh, or I think it's out now, on the Northwest Passage and kind of the development of the Northwest as well after Lewis and Clark. Kind of interested to read that. But I haven't read The Pilgrims. I think it's on a wish list somewhere that I need to uh, get to. I've been enjoying it so far. You know, I can't comment, you know, as an American, but I've certainly found it fascinating. And, you know, there's these historical figures that you recognize and the stories. And, you know, again, as you say, you know, ministers' daughters, this is a, this is a story of a very passionate minister, you know, advocating this expansion should happen. And, you know, the quite interesting. Certainly enjoy it on that respect. Well, there's another book recommendation. And look, uh, you know, Shannon, you're the, you're the last one to talk. Uh, I think that's probably about 15 pounds of books coming to me for Christmas from America. And <laughs> there's a lot of your recommendations in there. Um, I didn't uh, put uh, Peter Galibert's book in there, you know, by chance. You know, we know who's responsible for some of those problems. But, you know, talking of fueling technology, you know, t technologies fueling progress and all the rest of it. I mean, there's also this strong idea in the book that dovetails coming to the scene as one, but but also things like sawing technology and pit saws and how those worked into the, the construction of the time. But mm -hmm. what I found very interesting, and I don't really know what I was thinking before I read it, but I was reading up about the turning saws and, you know, the, the turning saws of the time have this sort of three-eighths you know size and that limits what you can do but then you know using saws and chisels and rafts to create those cabriole legs and you sort of look at that and then you see them from the underside and you can see these you know real fingerprints of the tools that were used on the work and it looks completely different obviously when it's in its kind of normal orientation but you know i loved seeing some of those pictures from underneath that kind of talk to the struggle of getting that perfect show face right and then also talk to these guys just not having the time to do that and needing to climb in and be efficient at the same time that's a good point it was this book that first kind of enlightened me to the fact that if you've got say like a, an apron on a on a low boy or something like that that's got a sima curve shape and things like that on it that shape is heavily back beveled you know in order to give you that sharp crisp line on the show face they've used a rasp at a pretty distinct back bevel angle in order to put that hard line in sharp contrast and they just left it it's a heavily rasped surface because the only person that's going to see that is the cat walking underneath. And that's that's one thing I'm constantly telling woodworkers is get to a museum and get up close and look at these quote unquote masterpieces. And you will have your eyes opened by like, how do I put this? How poorly made? That's a, not a way to put it, but how poorly made they are by today's standards. You know, we have put these dovetails up on a pedestal and perfect gap-free dovetails. I have never seen a gap-free dovetail in a museum. They just don't exist. There are gaps in dovetails you can drive a truck through in pieces in like the Smithsonian and the Winterthur Museum and actually British Museum as well, but just enormous gaps in the dovetails because that wasn't important. In fact, most of this 18th century furniture, the dovetails were not seen. Joinery was hidden entirely. It wasn't until this upstart Ruskin came around and said, let's make our joinery visible and started making, you know, through tenons and stuff like that. All of the joinery was hidden. It was either veneered over or it was half blind dovetails on the case. So you never could see it unless you climbed up on top of the case. But man, ugly, ugly looking dovetail joinery and drawers. Um, 
lots of, of visible uh, scrub plane marks, pit saw marks, rasp marks everywhere you look, not even just underneath, but on the side. Because what was important was that front face. That's what That was the image, the impression that you were given when you looked at that high boy or that card table or whatever. You go around in the side and you will see tool marks everywhere. You'll see moldings attached to the case using a nail that has never been sunk, never been countersunk, no attempt to disguise it whatsoever because it didn't matter. It was on the side. It was less important. And that to me is liberating. That's... (laughs) that gives me hope. You know, I could build a piece of furniture and I can build a piece of furniture entirely by hand and not waste a bunch of time getting a perfect show surface on a surface that's never going to be seen. And it's not saying that, you know, we have the ability today with machines and with more precise tools to create much cleaner surfaces than, than they did back there. And for a hobbyist, you know, time isn't necessarily money. So you can take the time to to flatten the drawer bottom and not leave your scrub plane marks, or you can leave your scrub plane marks and revel in the fact that 300 years from now, there'll be some woodworker geeking out over that just like I did, you know, looking at a piece built 300 years ago. That's a a key point that Jeffrey's keen to get across. Uh, Before we get too far from it, you brought up pit saws and frame saws and things like that. There's another fun little oddity. If you look at 18th century furniture and specifically looking at British and American furniture as compared to European furniture, you will not see a lot of card tables. Well, let's not, let me, let me back up. You will find some card tables in Europe, but they're heavily veneered. And, you know, one could say, well, the whole Louis XIV movement and the, the opulent veneer work that was going on, you know, that was in vogue, but it also was because the substrate materials were quite poor. So, you had to cover it with veneer because you have no piece of furniture otherwise. Whereas you go across the channel to England or across the ocean to North America, you suddenly have these drop leaf gaming tables or you know swing leg gaming tables or uh, the stacked top where the, the top folds back on itself onto a swing leg. Those were solid pieces that were not veneered because not only did we have the trees big enough, but we had the pit saw. We had the steel, we had the industry and the resources to create a pit saw or a large frame resaw that could be used to actually resaw that log into wide boards. Whereas without that steel, without that industry, we were using an axe, you know, and you look at how lumber was broken down over in the continent. There are certainly were examples of bandsaw mills and water. I mean, there's an example of a German bandsaw mill, reciprocating sawmill back in the 1400s that was water powered. But for the most part, that was a rarity. It was that resource that allowed for industry, that allowed for the creation of a wide steel blade that actually allowed the creation of the card table as we know it today. And that is a distinctly British style, which maybe that's why bridge became a thing in, in, in England. I don't know. I don't know where bridge originated, but it seems having uh, lived at Chicksands Royal Air Force Base for a while, I can tell you it was a very big deal to play bridge over there. So that's just another one of those fun little historical things. And you think about it and say, oh, I've seen a French card table. Yes, but it's heavily veneered. And if you were to peel back that veneer, you would find all kinds of nasty underneath it. You know, things glued together and what we would today put number three common lumber glued together in panels that would never be a show surface. So instead it was peeled from a log and usually an exotic material because again, coming up from your neck of the woods, coming up from Africa, these huge, ginormous tropical trees that could be um, sliced for veneer. 
You mentioned a, an interesting thought, and it, possibly this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was talking to Nancy. Because we've stayed Nancy, on topic so well so far. Because we've done so well so far, yes. I was talking to Nancy Hiller, and you know, she also made the point about hobbyists having you know, time to do things versus cabinet makers, you know, today who, you know, have to be efficient and run a business. But I am struck by one thought is that even as a hobbyist, there is a cost to perfection. And that is that, and we'll go back to my daughters, I'll use my daughter's cupboard, you know, for a year, I was trying to flatten perfect panels, and I wanted to make the best cupboard ever. And that really just locked me into this paralysis of looking for you know, a thousandth here and there on a on an oak panel and, and working on that. And I'd suggest that the real cost to the hobbyist today of going after that machined perfection on non-show faces is it limits the amount of things you can do. And if you want to progress, the more volume you can get through, it means that your daughter isn't 17 before you've made her the rocking horse. <laughs> right. I think there, there really is that cost to going with a hand tool and trying to make a machined perfection surface everywhere. You know and I know that it doesn't matter in terms of layout and measurement and the show faces. And to me, that's the real cost of you know just going after that perfection. Sure, you can do it. It means the amount of work you're going to get in the, the hours you've got is just going to be limited. Well, and in addition to you know the, the time that it takes, it's also you look at, uh, there's a couple of sections in Green's book, but then also lots of other museum books where they often will show business ledgers from, for instance, uh, Townsend shop or the Goddard shop or Chapin shop. And you see the volume of work that they turned out and how fast they worked. And yeah, some of it was, you know, this is not a show surface, so let's not put any time or effort into it. But the sheer efficiency, and that's one of the things that I'm kind of, as a hand tool fanatic, I'm kind of always hammering that home. Hand tools are not slow. They're certainly you know, machine standards that are a heck of a lot faster. But I think we make hand tools slow because we're trying to put machine precision on top of them, or we're trying to create that perfect show surface where one is not necessary. And when time is money, certainly you want to get this piece out the door, but there's also just working efficiently in order, you know, it's not so much I'm working fast. I'm only doing enough strokes with that rasp to get what I need and no more beyond that. This goes back to like what I call my spot planning methodology, where, I mean, you could spend all this time traversing a board all day long and then running diagonal strokes across the board, or you could just hit the high spots and then leave it as that. You know, you get it into the flat-ish plane and then you're done and you move on. And it's interesting because if you look at historical records, there's really no master or there's no record of, of a master saying, here is how you flatten a board with a plane. And even if you go back to the Lost Art Press book, The Joiner and Cabinet Maker, there's like a sentence in there where the master tells Thomas, I think Thomas, Thomas? Yeah. yeah, tells Thomas, go and pick out some deal and flatten it. And that's the only instruction Thomas gets on how to flatten it. Because flattening, when you think about it, I want to flatten a board. Well, well how do I do that? Well, I find the parts that aren't flat and I remove them. You know, that's like stupid obvious, right? But we, because we're so smart here in the 21st century, have decided, well, we need to employ all of these processes, all of these methods, all of this rote in order to flatten this board. And it's still the same way. Look at the board, find the high spots, remove the high spots. And this was just common sense for these 18th century cabinet makers. So they did as little work as possible to get to the finished thing. And that's not being lazy, that's being efficient. 
And to me, that's an epiphanal moment. If you're a hand tool woodworker, when you suddenly realize, man, I am moving. Like I'm going to get this piece of furniture done really quickly and I'm building this entirely by hand. How did that happen? Well, it's, you just did what was necessary and none of the extra stuff. And honestly, the irony to that or the paradigm shift, if you will, the only way to be that efficient is to actually work entirely by hand. The minute you introduce a machine, a power tool into that is the minute that you require greater flatness, you require greater precision it's because that power tool needs a reference surface, right? You can't run that biscuit joiner up against an unjointed edge or a rough sawn edge and expect to get a nice panel joint there. You're going to have to have a nice flat edge to do that. You can't run that board. You can't cut that board down to size on a table saw unless you've got a flat surface. Otherwise, it's going to pinch and kick back on you. You, know, you can't run that board through the planer unless you've got a flat surface to reference against the bed of the planer. And that's the, the real irony it's like, okay, well, I want to work fast. I want to work efficiently entirely by hand. Then you got to go all in. The minute that you don't require that flat surface because you're taking you know, the tool to the wood, it changes the game completely and it changes the speed at which you work. And that you really see in those ledgers I was talking about earlier. When you see that this cabinet maker in Newport, this week he built a high boy, he built a card table and he built a chair. You're like, what? <laughs> this week? Yeah, well, next week, he's got to build six more chairs and a dining table. <laughs> like, good Lord, the pace at which they work. And it's not like they were working super long days because when the sun went down, it was dark, you know? You couldn't flip a light switch and keep working. You worked when it was light in the shop, and when it was no longer light, you had to go home. That's the real revelation, I think. Talking to that, you know, in the sort of technique section there, two things that sort of jumped out at me immediately. The one was on mortise and tenons and just the matching scribe lines where it's very clear that the mortise and the tenon were laid out and they were cut on the saw and they were chiseled and then they matched. You've got those two mating scribe lines that wouldn't have been there if you'd done one or the other first and then shown the piece to it, etc. And I, you know, I looked at that and I said, well, that makes perfect sense. If you're doing these things all day, every day, you would have, you know, you would have had to get your skill to that level where you can just throw these out. You just didn't have the time to sit there and use some of the processes, you know, we would have used today, or I would certainly use today. But one of the other things that jumped out is kind of the the opposite of that. There's a bit where Green is talking about planing, and he shows the different sort of patterns for traversing boards and you know coming back to your spot planning i looked at that and i thought there's no way in hell that they were sitting there in the 18th century traversing boards backwards and forwards just to get them perfectly flat i think they were knocking off you know the really high spots and they were doing what they needed to do and that was that they certainly weren't doing that full board planning to you know to get the stuff down there so i I did chuckle when i saw that page a bit But also some fascinating stuff. I mean, I was looking at that pre-compression technique, you know, to sort of prevent the cracking, you know, where where they're using these clamps and pre-compressing the wood and whatever. They certainly had a very deep understanding of that material that I would suggest, you know, we probably lost in a lot of ways today because we can use a machine to butcher something, whereas they were very much in tune with how the wood was going to work and how it was going to move and, you know, what it was capable of. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes to... Again, kind of common sense because it was something that you dealt with day in and day out. You know, the average cabinet maker, you know, may have been at the top of his trade and may have been a well respected member of the town, but he still chopped his own firewood when he went home at night, you know, because he had to heat his house in order to not die. Whereas today, you know, I can sit in my shop and I can build 
you know, highfalutin furniture all day and then go in and turn up the thermostat. I don't have to chop any wood. I enjoy it, but you know, just splitting wood, splitting firewood teaches you a heck of a lot about the structure of wood. And then, you know, you've got your own furniture at your own house that maybe you're building, whether you are a cabinet maker or a farmer, you got to build that trough for the cows or that stool to sit on to milk the cow or just to sit on at the table. So every person had a much more intimate understanding of wood because they worked with it a lot more and they were very close to the material. And some, you know, all these cabinet makers in the 18th century weren't sawing the boards. There was a sawyer for that, but they went to the saw, the saw yard and they got their material, you know, or in some instances in the more cosmopolitan areas, they were delivered um, but still, the saw yard was down the road or on the outskirts of the town. So they were very aware of how this board ended up in their shop. Whereas today, you go to Home Depot and yeah, you pick up some boards, but you don't really know what happened to that board. You don't know how that board got there. You certainly don't know all the stuff that went into that board, which is why people are always complaining about the cost of lumber, because there's a lot of labor that happened before it ended up on that rack at Home Depot. Well, Maybe not. Depends on the type of board. Not a lot of labor goes into a two by four. Yet the two by four cost $9 right now. <laughs> Thank you, COVID. So back then there was less mystery, you know, less product under cellophane in the freezer cabinet at the grocery store. You knew exactly where that came from and enough distance from the tree to the board to not have an understanding of that material. And yeah, you're right. We've, we've certainly lost that just through specialization, through industry and through domestication, if you will. And yet, I mean, I guess also at the time in their own way, there was also that kind of difference between a manufactured product in a town or a city where I guess the cost of getting the raw material there, you know, it's not quite the same as the country joiner who was wandering out and splitting some oak, you know, from from just up the road and making some furniture with that. So, you know, also it becomes easier to maybe understand there why a country furniture was not putting a lot of labor into it and was quite happy to be, I'm not going to say wasteful, but certainly didn't have to be conservative with the material. And right. then someone in a city, the the cost of getting a quality wood there justified maybe doing some of the carving, some of the details, some of the additional work into it because the labor was cheap in the city. So, you, you know, really you see that break starting to happen here and in, in, in certainly in some of the styles. So I found that interesting, but also some of the techniques, you know, to be honest, I I'd never seen a sliding shoulder dovetail and, you know, dovetailed with mitered shoulders for cock beading and whatever. So there, there were certainly some techniques these guys were using that, you know, were really quite uh, complicated compared to what I was used to. Right. Well, an interesting counterpoint to this idea that, you know, they had a, a more, a better understanding of the materials they're working with is also some of the lack of attention paid to wood movement. And that is another thing. If you go to a museum, you'll find a lot of instances you look at that and go, how is that like not cracking apart? Or look a little closer and you'll see the cracks, you know, where this has split several times over the last couple hundred years. And the only thing that's kept it alive now is because it's kept in a hermetically controlled environment, you know, because it has a immense value as an antique and it's in the Smithsonian at this point. But there were a lot of instances, and there's actually a section in this book where Green talks about how tabletops were attached or how moldings were attached. In many instances, it was a peg driven right through the top into the top of a leg, you know, freezing that panel in place and not allowing for wood movement. And while I think they had a good understanding of the materials, that also played to the fact that they weren't thinking about 300 years from now. Maybe they understood that what I'm doing is going to prevent this wood from moving, but at the same time, I don't care. 
You know, I mean, not not like I'm going to make a substandard piece or not like who cares what happens 100 years from now, but it's wood. It's going to move no matter what. So let's let's do our best to just finish this piece. And if it cracks, you know, no one's going to be really upset by that because it's wood. We know that. That greater understanding the material also allows for a much more forgiveness of its sense. You know, when that tabletop buckles over time, it didn't really matter. And it was okay to let that go. So by today's standards, we're, are, we're trying to apply this level of perfection to an organic material that just, it's not going to sit still. You know, we're fortunate in the fact that most of us have climate controlled houses and we really minimize the seasonal change that allows for great swings in, in wood movement. But the, the, the irony is we focus so much on wood movement. It's like, oh my God, we've got to make sure that the wood doesn't move because it could explode on us. You know, it's like a ticking time bomb and they just didn't pay any attention to it in the 18th century. And green really lays out a lot of those attachment points, how moldings were attached, tabletops were attached, various components were assembled together into a case, and there's very little attention paid to the wood movement idea. Does that mean that these guys were idiots and they didn't know any better? I submit that they knew full well that the wood was going to move, but they weren't worried about it that much. They recognized that the movement that it was going to see was not that big of a deal. It was a negligible amount of movement. And if it did cause movement, the worst it would do is maybe make the top a slightly out of flat, or it might make the legs bow out a little bit more, but it certainly wasn't going to be a problem. Moreover, it's not like they had perfectly flat hardwood floors. You know, they had plank flooring that no matter how precisely you made that table, it still rocked when you put it in its final place because the floor was completely out of flat. So there's this interesting counterpoint there where they knew a lot about the material and they knew they knew that wood was going to move. They weren't ignorant of that fact, but they just didn't pay any attention to it. So maybe there's a lesson that we can learn. We can chill out a little bit on that. I was going to say, I think maybe there's a bit of regard for it, but you know, not you know, obsession to it. And you know, I, I'm going to be honest, I'm making furniture for my own house. I've seen my boys set uh, matches a lot on hardwood flooring and pretty sure if I give them a pen knife, there's going to be a gouge in the wall. Um, <laughs> Yeah. The wood movement is the least of my problems with the desk. You know, once that's made and it's dropped in the house, then life's going to happen to it. I don't think wood wood movement's going to destroy it quite the same way as my boys playing laser tag around the house. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> right. Not my biggest worry in keeping the furniture together. Right. Well, that can be forgiven. I mean, Thomas Chippendale didn't have to worry about laser tag, so we can he can be forgiven for that. <laughs> I found that the technique section was very interesting, almost as kind of a primer. You know, I, I agree with your assessment that it's not a how-to book because, you know, I certainly found things like the veneering and the inlay and, you know, the finishing, the French polishing. Those are quite light sections, but they certainly give you a 30,000-foot a view of the techniques that were involved. I don't think you would finish the book and go, gee, I wonder how they did that. So I, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it's certainly not an instructional, but, you know, if you've got some curiosity on how to carve a ray fan for example or you want to you know see how french polishing was done there's that good thirty thousand foot in there i'd suggest you probably go and grab a another text you know to supplement the book but a really great overview of what they were doing at the time yeah yeah i think that goes for just about every chapter of the book that never really gets too deep on anything i mean even the um i'm just like flipping through it now even the um the proportion kind of the design section near the back of the book there is a really good overview about kind of sight lines and the designs and and the focal point of each of these pieces of furniture and how that was important. But yeah, it's enough to whet your appetite, you know, it's enough to give you, you know, okay, let me look into this a little bit more. But as I said at the outset of this recording, it 
also really gives you a peek kind of inside the cabinet, inside the drawers, underneath the table to really get to see how this stuff goes together. And where he does go a little bit deeper is in those oddities. Like you were talking about with, a, you know, employing a cock bead on a case. How was that dealt with? You know, was it applied? Well, here it was applied, but here it was actually integral. You know, it was actually molded into the edge. And then how did that transfer into the attachment points of the drawer blades? So he does get specific there when it affects the construction, which if you like 18th century furniture and you want to build 18th century furniture, this book is a gold mine for those tiny little details that are super specific around a super specific element of a specific style, right? Um, he spends a lot of time on the cabriole leg and a lot of time on the ball and claw because obviously those are defining elements of both Queen Anne and Chippendale and the regional differences there and how they are cut, things like knee blocks and sea scrolls and acanthus leaves and things like that that really get hyper, hyper detailed. Then again, you know, ever since Mary May put out her acanthus carving book and, and video, now you can dive even deeper and go that way. So yeah, this will whet your appetite and allow you to go down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes. I think if you pick up this book and you don't come away from it without wanting to try something in the book, then I'm, I'm not sure you read the same book I read because, and I know you've done some uh, ball and claw foots, but I've never done the um, Dutch pad legs, you know, and I, I just looked mm -hmm. at that and I thought, gee, that's a project with a little bit of off-center turning in it, potentially. I've never done that before. Using rasps to shape that, you know, I'm just inspired. I want to want to go and build something having gone through the book. And, you know, what's great is we've kind of spoken about it, but, you know, for listeners, there's, you know, five or six good examples of each one of the styles with exploded drawings, mm -hmm. structural notes. You can see exactly how that thing's put together. And, you know, whether that's I guess, 18th century furniture or not. You know, if you're putting something together today and you want to go and see how a desk was put together then and a couple of different examples, the joinery is incredibly clear. You can go and start making those parts. It's not measured drawings. It's not that style of book that I'm going to, you know, sort of characterized as that sort of 1980s style of book where there had to be a project section in the back end or, you know, the book wasn't going to get published. It's not like that. But right. if you are reading it and you have an interest in furniture at this level, I would suggest that you've got everything you need there to go and build one of those pieces to the dimensions and, you know, to the size that makes sense for your house. And I think the key is, is whether you like 18th century furniture or not, the construction techniques are the same. In some ways, you might even say better. So like if you wanted to build a contemporary or say, you know, you want to jump on the mid-century bandwagon and build something in that style, you want to build the chest of drawers, you can pick up this book and there's example after example of exploded drawing of how that chest of drawers, the guts of that chest of drawers, how it was handled. And you can use the exact same techniques to build that more contemporary style of chest of drawers. That hasn't really changed. In many instances, it's, it's been lessened, dumbed down, made a little bit easier to mass produce, mass manufacture. But if you built it the way that it was showed in this book, you're going to end up with a better constructed version of that contemporary chest of drawers. Talking to that kind of example, we mentioned Newport earlier on in, in the show, and I was really fascinated by the, the fact that they sort of affixed their cabriolet legs in a different manner, you know, so they were doing the leg blocks and that allowed it to break down for shipping, you know, because of how they put it together. And I've got a writing desk that the one leg, you know, has been broken for ages now. Uh, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, it's held up by a pile of books at the moment. And my wife keeps asking me when am I going to fix it? And I just keep telling her I don't have the skills to fix it. But reading through a book like this, I, you know, I suddenly realized, hang on, I have two distinct options here of how I go about fixing it. And now that I know that this was how 
it was done in the Newport area and there's the exploded drawing showing you exactly what they've done around that and, and how that supported the leg. I've got another option of repairing that. That is not the way it was originally constructed, but frankly, I don't want to take the entire case apart to repair a broken leg. And, you know, by the same token, I don't want to sit there with pocket screws either. So, you know, this certainly gave a different idea of how you could construct something there. Agreed very much. Yeah. It, it lays out the fundamentals in a, in a way that to this day, I still haven't seen another book do it. And I think it's because of the fact that it's not trying to teach you how to build this piece of furniture. You know, it's not trying to give you measured drawings. It's trying to give you an overview of a style of furniture. And he can get away with just showing exploded drawing and not showing a single dimension or really going into any detail. But as you said earlier, it's very clear. You can look at that drawing and go, oh, okay. That to me, people often ask me like, well, how do I know what joint to use here? Or what joint to use there? How do you know how that chest is constructed, how that table is constructed? And my answer is always observation. Just spend a lot of time looking at furniture. And that's one of the reasons this book is in the top of the stack, because I'm constantly picking it up and looking at how did that go together and how did that go together? And after a while, you know, a mortise and tendon is a mortise and tendon. It doesn't really matter where it is. You know, you just need to know that there's a mortise and tendon there and you can figure out the details and the size and whether it has a haunch or how long it should be or any of that stuff based upon your, your specific application. And this will be that kind of stepping stone to allow you to recognize there's a mortise and tendon there because he makes that very clear in his drawings. And Shannon, I think as we sort of wrap this up and maybe bring it to a close, I mean, one of the other things that really sort of jumped out at me that I found fascinating was his techniques of taking a look at a picture and using the photographic distortion tables and the stuff that he'd got there and the, the lines to actually translate that into a plan. And I thought that was very interesting because for many of us, you might not have access to that museum, but you certainly have access to the internet where you could go and get a photo. And then using some of these techniques, you can kind of work backwards to what the dimensions are and what the proportions are that you that you could use. Absolutely. And, you know, you have access to the internet, which means you have access to the hand tool school and semester two and semester three, in which I show this technique. <laughs> Fantastic. Sorry, had to throw that little plug in there. Now, I'm a huge, huge proponent because I'm often people are coming and saying, well, do you have a plan for this or plan for that? And, you know, I just say, look, I've got a picture. I've got a picture and I've got some rough dimensions. That's all you need, you know, but you can figure out lines of sight. You can figure out perspective and you can draw, essentially impose your X and Y axis onto an image. What Green talks about is, you know, oftentimes you've got that museum photo and it's never taken straight on. You know, wouldn't that be nice if they just took that wonderful straight on view? It's usually at a slight angle. Well, you can draw those angles on the image to create your X and Y axis in perspective, and you can measure along those axes in order to derive dimensions. And if I know that this low boy, I'm looking at the cover of the book, the low boy is 21 inches high or probably 22, 23 inches high. I can take that Y axis along the long axis of the leg. It's very clear what that axis is, but in the image, that's not a vertical line. That's not straight up and down. It's kind of slightly skewed to the left in perspective, whereas the x-axis is also skewed up in an angle because it is perspective. But if you measure along that axis, 20, whatever the book says, 23 inches, you measure the picture and the picture comes out at three inches. Well, now you have a multiplier. Now you know that this is three inches here, but in real life, it needs to be 23 inches. When I divide one into the other, you have a multiplier. So now I can measure 
the width of the tabletop in the image and the width of the tabletop along that perspective axis is say four inches. Well, now I multiply four by that modifier and I know the real dimension. And this applies to every image. So it's actually one of the projects I'm building in that first project semester I talked about is what happens when the spouse comes to you and says, I want you to build this. Or when your daughter comes to you and says, I want that desk, dad, you know, and all you have is an image. Sometimes you don't even have dimensions, but usually if it's in a catalog, there are dimensions. Somebody has given you because you need to know, is it going to fit in your space or whatever before I buy that online from Wayfair or Ikea or whatever. So you have those, those dimensions and you can impose those on your image and you can build anything. But one thing you will not know is, well, what's the joinery? And back to this book, you're going to get a really good idea of what that joinery should be because all those exploded drawings in here will show you how it was done, you know, 300 years ago. And that pretty much hasn't changed. Shannon, I think we'll probably end the show there, but I think for all the listeners, you know, what's really inspiring to me in this conversation is hearing that someone with your length of experience and, you know, the stuff that you've done is still keeping this book on the bookshelf, top of the bookshelf, looking at it and, you know, finding inspiration and finding techniques and and information inside of it. And, you know, that certainly speaks to the length of time that, you know, the book will be with you and the use that a listener would get out of uh, getting a copy of this book. So, Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us on the book. It's really been great to talk to you again and you know, look forward to having you on future shows sometime. If I can throw in one last parting thing, this is going back. According to my blog, it was posted 11 years ago, which is ancient in internet history. But I did a blog post on this book when I bought it at Woodworking in America. And there's, there's an audio recording. Um, I think I've got a couple snippets from his lecture in that audio recording as well. So those that are interested in this book and maybe want another peek at it, I can send you a link to this because it's in my old, way old site format. So it's not a, not a pretty URL. It's quite long. But um, yeah, you can actually hear some of the lecture that, uh, that Jeffrey did on this in 2009 on this book. Super. That'll be fantastic. And I'll stick that in the show notes so everyone who's interested can you know reference that. Yeah. But to sum up, go buy this book. It's still my number one. Go buy this book and go buy some lumber. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been fun. Super. Thank you, Shannon. 